Good morning, you're listening to WTUL New Orleans News and Views. It is Monday, April 20th, 10 a.m. I'm DJ Mimi. Thanks for tuning in. Wishing you all good health and well-being here from my home. We just heard Democracy Now!'s daily episode, and in the next hour we'll jump into a Democracy Now! web exclusive from April 14th on who delivers food in pandemic gig workers from Instacart to Uber demand safety and hazard pay. And then at 10.30, we'll hear Counterspin from FAIR.org. This week on Counterspin is Naomi Walker on COVID-19 relief, Johanna Bazwa on the last new normal. Thanks for listening. Here we go. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The Quarantine Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We're broadcasting from the epicenter of the pandemic, New York City. Grocery stores have become one of the front lines of the coronavirus pandemic, with store workers and gig economy shoppers often working without protection as demand for groceries soars and millions of Americans stay home. To speak about the risks grocery store and delivery workers face. We're joined now by a personal shopper who formerly worked for the delivery app Instacart. Instacart workers went on strike in late March to demand the company implement appropriate safety measures and give them hazard pay. Matthew Tellis is a member of the Gig Workers Collective, which organized the strike. Uh, we welcome you to Democracy Now!, Matthew. For some people, they discovered Instacart for the first time in the midst of this pandemic, as people are told to stay home. Of course, it's a luxury to be able to be home, work from home, and also order groceries online. Can you explain the history of Instacart um, and talk about what happens with the workers, how large this company is? Uh, yeah, Instacart uh, is one of these startups um, from, you know, about seven or eight years ago, a little after Uber was created, um, you know, came out of that group of the first batch and really small to start off. I started in late 2015, and it was amazing. I had a uh, previous uh, career that I had to leave behind because of a workplace injury um, and was going to use Instacart as like a kind of just a stopgap until I found my next venture and fell in love with it. Uh, it paid great, uh, gave me access to all the amazing buildings downtown, like the top of the Sears Tower, all the tunnels, like someone who loves history, like it was amazing. And pretty a couple of months after I started, um, around 2016, early 2016, um, Instacart um, wanted to start uh, competing with Amazon, who had just kind of purchased Whole Foods, and implemented what's known in the industry as something called scale hacking or growth hacking, where they grow at all costs just to beat their nearest competitor to market. And the way that they do that is they start cutting the pay for all of their frontline employees, like myself, the, the shopper who's out in the stores. Uh, the first huge move that they tried to do um, back when there was only about 70,000 total shoppers in the country, not even in Canada yet, um, Instacart made an announcement that they were going to remove tipping from the platform, which at that point, for me personally in Chicago, made up about 18 uh, percent average for what I earned every day. Um, so we uh, kind of banded together. We used uh, our large Facebook groups to kind of just find the loudest voices and band together and fight back. And, you know, we got them to... Uh, reinstate tipping um, after uh, threatening to walk off. And ever since then, we feel like they've been retaliating as they've grown more. Um, last count, they had uh, 200,000 shoppers, but they have just brought on almost like 100,000 more in the last two weeks. Now, can I interrupt you? When you uh, say shoppers, they bring on shoppers. Explain yeah. how, how the system works. Someone goes online and puts in an order for food. And then what happens at your end? So on my end, um, that will be grouped in a offering in my area. It's called On Demand. It's a way for Instacart to get out from under like employment protections uh, with AB5 in California. So there's just a bunch of orders displayed for you, and you have to grab them before someone else does. Um, so right now, since there's so much desperation out there, a lot of people you know, trying to make ends meet, um, they go very quickly, and you just got to be fast. And you don't know the address you're delivering to, what's in the order. You just blindly grab it. And hope that where do you grab it from labor from the app uh, on our smartphones? Most people will be sitting in a parking lot of a grocery store that they prefer to shop at. So they'll try and shop at that store after getting a list of available batches and they'll select it and claim it. And then no one else can claim it. And then you start shopping that order. 
in the grocery store as you would for yourself. You wait in a checkout line as you would for yourself. There's no like special privileges for Instacart contractors. Um, and then you deliver uh, with your own vehicle uh, to the customer's doorstep, hopefully. And you swipe delivered and you move on to your next one. More batches become available and you get to choose from that list. Mm -hmm. And what kind of protective gear are people given? Um, well, as of just a couple of days ago, none. Um, just this morning, as I was checking the various Facebook groups uh, across the country, I, I have seen that some of the hand sanitizers uh, that Instacart ordered are starting to arrive. We have some reports that a lot of them are damaged, though. Um, so they're, they're leaking and, and not making it to the people who ordered them. You can't, can't order them right now on their website. And we haven't seen any of the safety kits they created, uh, actually arrive yet. I actually have a pre-order out for one, um, just to see if it ever arrives. I, at this point, after what, four plus years of fighting Instacart, I don't believe anything they say until I can see it, touch it and, and actually like experience it. So I don't even know if those exist, um, Instacart uh, PR is telling a lot of the media that, you know, they're doing all these great things and they're just empty words to a lot of people like me. Um, so you know, we, we sorry, go ahead. You talked about tipping and how it was removed. Now it's put back. Can you talk about what's happening now? Um, how people use tipping to make sure that, you know, they, they can somehow get an order not a month from now and what actually happens to those tips? Yeah, so there's a, a obviously a huge history with tipping in Instacart, but uh, this is actually a problem that was uncovered um, or picked up by CNN recently about tip baiting. This has been an ongoing issue with Instacart for years, where um, you know certain Facebook groups of like couponers and other people they pass like life hacks that have actual real world ramifications for humans, and you know there's a, something going on right now where people will put their tip high on an order which we see the tip ahead of time. So we will, you know, oh, they're going to pay me a $100 tip to get them, you know, 20 items at a grocery store. That's worth my time. I'll take it. But you go to the store, you shop the order, you get maybe half of it, you deliver it. And then, you know, a half hour after delivery, you'll see that the tip was removed. So one of two things is going on. Uh, it's either tip baiting or another Instacart bug in their systems that basically handle all the financial side of how we're paid. We've had them, you know, admit to a tip stealing bug on at least two or three occasions and probably several more that they'll never admit to. So it's really hard to tell with no transparency uh, within the company. It's all through black box algorithms. And really, you know, we just got to kind of feel what's going on by crowdsourcing information via Facebook and Twitter. I wanted to ask you about a statement made by the Instacart founder and CEO, Apoorva Mehta, who announced the company would bring on 300,000 additional shoppers to meet increased demand amidst the pandemic. Mehta said workers are being provided with health and safety supplies, issued a statement that said, quote, we are also offering additional support for shoppers who may be affected by COVID-19. All in-store shoppers nationwide now have access to sick pay, an accrued benefit that can be used as paid time off if you're absent from work due to illness or injury. Additionally, any full-service or in-store shopper can receive up to 14 days of extended pay if you're diagnosed with COVID-19 or placed in individual mandatory isolation or quarantine. Again, the statement of the CEO of Instacart. Your response, Matthew, tell us. I'm, like, shaking with rage right now. Uh, I've said it before. If I was the governor of any state, I would put a, a hiring freeze on all of these apps immediately until they prove those words you just read to me, because that's not the real-world application. Instacart announced they're hiring 300,000 people, 27,000 of them to your epicenter in New York, and another 50,000 to California, which is on, a, like, a complete lockdown. These— these new shoppers are the ones who are recently out of work, and everyone deserves a living wage. And it breaks my heart to see these new shoppers out in the stores, because I'm still out in the stores with my personal business that I was able to create over the last couple of years with a different company. And my biggest issue right now is all these new Instacart shoppers that are unprotected in the stores with their entire families a lot of times. Um, they're really harassing uh, the grocery store workers a lot of times. We have a lot of reports of that, and I've seen that with my own eyes. Um, 
We're seeing issues where, you know, there, there's issues at delivery. Uh, there's issues with safety. We have reports of Instacart asking a, a simple one question hiring process of, have you been convicted of a felony in the last seven years? If you answer no, you were immediately activated and could go shop orders using like Google Pay. So last week and two weeks ago, people were just getting activated and onboarded immediately. They sent an email to their customer base saying, basically, hey, we know you got laid off. You want to work for Instacart as a shopper. And everyone signed up and they bragged about that. I have the email. It's gross. Um, and so they just activated these new shoppers without background checks. There's even reports of down in Miami, they're hiring underage uh, people, 16, 17 years old. Um, and they were having issues at checkout because they didn't even have their payment cards yet or any identification. And Google Pay was failing. So they were paying for Instacart orders with their own money. And that's always been a problem to get Instacart to reimburse you for that. So we're just trying to get a bunch of information out there to these new shoppers. We're, we're not here to police them, but... Like if no one's going to train them, someone has to. And, you know, we'll do what we can in the stores or, or, or answer some questions in Facebook groups. But patience is wearing kind of thin. And, you know, it's it's definitely very emotional um, when you're in the grocery store trying to stay safe. And now you're trying to traverse, you know, hordes of Instacart shoppers at Costco and trying to avoid the elderly folks in the store who are trying to protect themselves while also trying to avoid the other group of people who are like in denial. So the, the jobs become very, very stressful. It's not for everyone. And I don't think eight out of the 10 people who have just been laid off should be looking at Instacart for employment. It's just not worth it. And what do you say to customers of Instacart? Some people have just discovered it for the first time during this pandemic. Um, what kind of leverage do you think customers have to ensure that the gig workers, the people who work, the shoppers, are justly dealt with? Uh, customers actually do have a lot of leverage. Um, Instacart will always tell the media and customers that people like myself and the groups that I work with and organize are a vocal minority, and that's just definitely not the case. Uh, a lot of people are speaking up. We're getting uh, way less pushback from joining our, our actions uh, as of late because this is a very serious issue. Um, and people are starting to realize that groceries, your food, your health, your safety are also very important because all it takes is one infected delivery person to take down your entire family and anyone that you might be kind of linked up with. Um, but uh, Instacart uh, customers, especially new ones, look at the, the deep history of what we've been uh, involved in over the last four and a half years. It's all available uh, in a quick Google search. Just look up Instacart and hit news, and you'll be able to read all about the different things that Instacart's kind of done over the years, all of the kind of lies they've been caught in, all of this. The, basically, their PR statements is just the same thing every every six months. Um, so you can go back and read them all, and they're all just the same statement. And they're all hollow. No action has ever been taken from them. Um, so just do your research. And then once you learn about Instacart, don't take my word for it. Like, listen to journalists and experts. Um, look for alternatives. You know, there are still some grocery stores out there that, that aren't tied to Instacart, that have their own in-house deliverers still. It's a good paying job. There's also other apps out there that are much more ethical. Uh, me personally, I was able to link up and work closely with the founders of an app called Dumpling out of Seattle that lets me set my own rates. And that could be as low as free. I get to choose who I give free delivery to, whether it be elderly people or immunocompromised, which then the company Dumpling is going to subsidize, which I haven't asked for yet because I'm one of the lucky few that has more work than I can really you know, handle right now um, because people are not using Instacart or Amazon. Amazon just put a freeze on new customers because they can't handle it. So right now we're seeing like this business model kind of blow up um, under the stress of demand. And us veteran shoppers always knew that was going to happen. And we've been blowing the whistle and calling um, foul on a lot of these different hacks that these companies utilize in loopholes. And because of that, I haven't had to market with Dumpling or anything. People are just coming to me. It's free marketing. And I have my, my days are packed 
from 9 a.m. to 8.30 so, p.m. I'm driving all over. Matthew, awesome. if you could end by just talking about the Gig Workers Collective, not just Instacart, but talk about yeah. what overall people are facing and who is the population of gig workers um, that are doing this kind of shopping at this absolutely critical time, where, as one of your statements puts out of the Gig Workers Collective, um, Instacart has turned this pandemic into a PR campaign portraying itself the hero of families that are sheltered in place, isolated or quarantined. Um, but who are um, uh, the gig workers in general, the other companies and the population of gig workers? So Gig Workers Collective came about after years of just a, being a ragtag group of people in Facebook and Twitter, uh, me, Vanessa, Sarah, and then people have come and gone over the years. You know, they've either just left the gig industry altogether or moved on to other things or just couldn't handle it or, you know, are still with us. We have dozens of people now all over the country linked up. I don't even know what most of the people look like. So we're just shoppers. We're most of us are people that are still kind of trying to rebuild from the last recession. I graduated uh, right when it hit. So, you know, I, you know, haven't had a, a good past decade and I'm now finally in a position where I'm having a great decade and it's awesome. But, um, you know, we're, we're now kind of trying to streamline the process so we can get the message out even farther as because the, the everyone's going to be in the gig industry eventually. We don't do something. You know, everyone just got laid off. Um, what, like eight and 10 workers or something about to. We're probably going to be in a depression. So everyone's going to be in the gig economy. Uh, you know, it's not just going to be the systemically impoverished uh, minorities, immigrants. They start with them, us. Um, Mexican myself, and, and uh, now we're seeing, you know, more of the middle class being laid off again, just like last time. They're going to start flooding these apps and um, aren't going to have enough information to do them safely or adequately. Uh, so we're just trying to get the word out because we know that we're not going to be able to prevent people from looking for income right now. Um, and if they have to uh, risk that, uh, they need to be protected with information and, and what to look out for because these companies, Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, Grubhub, Caviar, Shift, DoorDash is one of the worst ones, and Instacart, the king of just horrendous business decisions, will take advantage of them. Uh, you know, they call us essential workers. From watching you guys all today, it seems more like we're expendable. I guarantee you there's some memos behind closed doors that say, you know, when they die, we'll just replace them. And it's heartbreaking. But from that, we see so much good coming out of it with helping I each other. It's expendable or essential, Matthew? I think at first, when the adrenaline was still there, we were essential, uh, we were prideful, and now as we get more into it, that's wearing off, and it, it's seeming more like expendable. 100%. Matthew, tell us. I want to thank you so much for being with us. Personal shopper, former Instacart shopper. He is a member of the Gig Workers Collective, which has organized a strike of Instacart workers. Um, we thank you so much for being with us. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the quarantine report. And if you want to see our uh, broadcast on the uh, supply chain from the agricultural workers, the farm workers, the migrant workers, from the fields to the slaughterhouses, go to democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us. Gotta change around here. Gotta change around here. Can't go on this way. Things gotta change around here. Say it loud, say it clear. Things gonna change around here. Fingers on the trigger around here. Fingers on the trigger. Around here, bullets flying, mothers crying. We gotta change. Around here, get it straight. Be sure that you hear. Things gonna change around here. What good is freedom if we haven't learned to be free? What good is freedom if we haven't learned to be day after day, year after year? We're gonna change around here.
the letter, blue is the color, one is the number, now is the time. Gonna change around here, gotta change around here. Say it loud, say it clear, we gotta change around here. Gotta change around here. Gotta change around here. Lord, gotta change around here. Say it loud, say it clear. We gotta change around here.
Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, dozens of groups and state and local officials have just sent an open letter to Congress. The $150 billion designated for state, local, and tribal governments as relief from the COVID-19 crisis is nowhere near what those governments will need. And not just that, but forcing them to cut budgets just as they need to be spending more is going to drive a cycle that only hurts more those already hurting. We'll talk about what could be done instead with Naomi Walker, director of the Economic Analysis and Research Network, working out of the Economic Policy Institute, who spearheaded the letter. Also on the show, last October, USA Today ran a story headlined, With Raging Fires, High Winds, and Blackouts, California is Living a Disaster Movie. Is this the new normal? Little did they know. The distress and dystopia, and the fear of media's normalization of it, led us to questions then that we hold on to today. What could journalism be doing, not just to give context to factors behind the crisis, but to illuminate different ways forward that are so obviously called for? We talked last November with Johanna Bozua, co-manager of the Climate and Energy Program at the Democracy Collaborative. We'll hear part of that conversation today. That's coming up, but first a quick look back at some recent press. You may have heard CNN and others using terms like propaganda, meltdown, and rant to describe Donald Trump's propagandistic ranting meltdowns, also known as press briefings. That's a welcome development. It took them long enough to get there and seemed to require direct attacks on them personally, but we'll take it. What we should not take, though, is a press corps prepared to issue bold and incisive criticism of a raging sociopath. But when it comes to serious alternatives, actual systemic change, well, let's not get carried away. Workers devastated by the loss of their job and their health care at once? That's just terrible. Medicare for all? Hmm, you know, that's pretty radical. Maybe an op-ed. Nurses, farm workers, and meat packers suffering on the front line, deeply deserving of attention and sympathy. A livable, enforceable minimum wage that keeps pace with productivity? Well, you know, there are some very smart people who think that's a bad idea. Restructuring the economy so disasters like COVID don't further immiserate those already struggling while scoring billionaires still more billions? What are you, a socialist? Criticism of Trump, no matter how smart or funny, is no substitute for the radical undoing of the systems that made his presidency possible, the levers he was and is able to pull. That work involves listening to the people who are virtually never on the guest list and exploring ideas corporate media find unfit to print. On the pandemic itself, there's a lot of talk these days about the coronavirus peak, As coronavirus cases near 2 million, countries try to look beyond peak, was a New York Times headline. Other outlets are speculating about when each state will peak in fatalities from the pandemic. The idea of a peak gives the comforting impression that there's a corner to be turned and then life can get back to some kind of normal. The worst is over, as New York Governor Andrew Cuomo was recently quoted in the Times. As Jim Narikis writes for FAIR.org, Predictions of a peak are based on computer modeling, particularly from the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. Their model produces graphs that tend to suggest a rapid rise and fall in COVID-19 deaths. You can see these graphs on FAIR.org. We certainly hope to see the toll of the coronavirus trailing away dramatically, but it may also be another instance in which media are misleading by paying more attention to computer simulations than to real-world examples. Take Italy, the Western country with the earliest major COVID-19 outbreak. When you look at new cases per day, they've been arriving at a fairly consistent rate of about 3,000 to 6,000 a day for a month now. And this, in turn, has led to a quite steady level of active cases of infection, which helps explain why the number of deaths per day in Italy is falling very gradually, if at all. 
You see similar plateaus in other Western countries that had early major outbreaks, like Spain and France. And the same pattern can be seen in California, the first and one of the best controlled outbreaks in the U.S. It's possible that these outbreaks will soon take a turn for the better, and new cases and deaths will indeed fall off sharply. But it's also possible that the response to the coronavirus's lethality and asymptomatic infectiousness, that response being drastic physical separation necessary to prevent a quickly mounting death toll, that means that COVID-19 might not be a normal disease with a steep arrival curve and an equally sudden departure. In other words, there may be no peak per se. People should absolutely be thinking about how elements of normal life can be resumed most safely if the coronavirus ebbs away. But we also need to think about what we'll do if physical separation is something that needs to be sustained not for weeks, but for months, or even until a vaccine is available. How do we keep people fed and housed and cared for if much of the economy isn't functioning? And how do we maintain the economy such that it can be revived when that's safe to do? It's far better to have plans to answer those questions than to cross our fingers and hope we don't have to. Finally, even before the coronavirus made it glaringly obvious, it was clear that Internet access is critical to daily living, which is why many people think it should be a public service, like water or electricity. Now, imagine trying to access telehealth services or file for unemployment or do schoolwork remotely without reliable access. No one should have to. But as the group Free Press reminds us, the cost of broadband is so high and the ISP's policies are so discriminatory that even before the pandemic cost millions of people their paycheck, more than one-fifth of households in the country didn't have home Internet. Just 56% of households making less than $20,000 a year had home broadband, with low-income black and Hispanic households even less likely to have it than their low-income white counterparts. It's not enough to have access, a wire running to your house, without affordability. Free Press is encouraging folks to send a message to Congress that the next stimulus package must provide necessary resources to make sure people can connect and stay connected to broadband and phone services during the pandemic and the economic crisis that comes with it. You can find a letter you can sign on to if you choose at freepress.net. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. The absence of competent, much less compassionate, federal coordination and guidance through the economic shock of the COVID-19 crisis is becoming clear. State and local governments are struggling with the combination of new demands and a steep drop in revenue. And remember, unlike the feds, most states have to balance their budgets. That's why more than 180 organizations and state and local elected officials sent an open letter to members of Congress calling for $500 billion in relief for state, local, territorial, and tribal governments, along with other transformative investments. We're joined now by Naomi Walker, director of the Economic Analysis and Research Network, a network of state policy research and advocacy groups coordinated by the Economic Policy Institute, who spearheaded this open letter. She joins us by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Naomi Walker. Thanks so much, Janine. Glad to be here. Well, it's not just the raw fact that the $150 billion that the CARES Act designated for state and local governments is not enough. This open letter underscores that that insufficiency of resources drives decisions that drive decisions that end up pushing real recovery further out of sight. Is that so? That's exactly right. You know, with states and localities facing these shortfalls, and as you mentioned, they're not able to do deficit spending like the federal government can and should. And so they resort to cutting budgets and cutting budgets for programs that are really important, particularly in the midst of a pandemic and economic crisis, 
Ohio, for instance, just announced that they're going to do 20% across the board budget cut, or at least that's what the governor has proposed. And that has real implications for people and how quickly we can get the economy back on track after the crisis is over. So, you know, these budget cuts clearly are going to fall. We know who they fall on. When someone says austerity, we know who gets hurt by that. And it's, it's the people who are already hurting most now. Exactly. The most vulnerable workers, workers in low-wage jobs, communities of color, women, you know, a lot of the groups that we see negatively impacted by a lot of the policies in place will be certainly bear the brunt of the impact of these budget cuts. Well, beyond the $500 billion, the letter, again, signed by a range of groups, um, Atlanta Jobs with Justice, to the Center for Disability Rights, to Citizen Action Illinois, it urges Congress to adopt a transformative approach to protecting workers and businesses. What does that mean, a transformative approach? I think that this is really an opportunity to think bigger and think uh, in a bolder way than we have before about what it's going to take not just to fill the gaps in our infrastructure that this crisis is so clearly laid bare, but also to think beyond about what we want our economy to look like, what we want our safety net to look like going forward so that, you know, they're able to support an economy that works for everybody, not just the very richest among us. And so, you know, one of the approaches that EPI is calling for, along with uh, a lot of other groups, is that the U.S. should be considering some type of payroll guarantee program, just like United Kingdom and Mark and the Netherlands have implemented. And that would allow workers to stay attached to their jobs. The national government in those models pay up to 90 percent of all payroll costs for employers that are impacted by the shutdown. And that really helps create an economic deep freeze that allows everybody just hold tight, you know, It holds workers and businesses as harmless as possible while the economy shuts down and people stay home to help stave off the worst of the pandemic. Yeah, it's possible to have a pause and not to have a crash. But framing matters so much here. Keeping ideas like a protected pause off the page or in the margin, I think, is legitimizing these these fake and unnecessary choices that are lethal, you know, that are killing people. But there's a sense that, oh, well, we have to make a trade-off, and we don't have to make that trade-off. We can do something else. Yeah, there are other ways. You're exactly right. It's a false choice that's being set up, and the federal government has the resources that it could really throw down right now and stave off the economic pain that people are already feeling, um, and if more significant measures aren't taken very soon, you know, are going to be feeling for a very long time. Yeah, pain and, of course, insecurity. Mm-hmm. You know, what's going to come next? But if you mention other countries, other models, you mentioned the UK, Denmark, and Netherlands, it's like, avert your eyes. You know, we we can't do that here because it's not American something something freedom. Well, we've seen what the American uh, system has gotten us, and it's Uh, It's less people vulnerable and exposed, and it's time to look for other models. Well, what are some of the other things that this letter is encouraging Congress to do? So we think that one of the things that this pandemic has shown us, just like the Great Recession and the state fiscal crisis before that in 2000 has shown us, is that our nation's unemployment insurance system is really not prepared for a crisis of this magnitude And we think that while Congress took really unprecedented measures to expand unemployment insurance in a way we've just never seen before, and that's fantastic. There's more that needs to be done. And so we want to make sure that the benefits that were included in the CARES Act continue for as long as economic conditions warrant. The CARES Act set kind of arbitrary guidelines for when some of this aid would end. Some of the new expansions in the unemployment insurance system end at the end of July. Who knows where we're going to be at the end of July? And so instead of tying it to random dates, we think it really needs to be tied towards to continuing as long as we're in this economic downturn. We also know that unemployment insurance, even though it's 
vastly expanded who is eligible for the pandemic unemployment assistance. There are still some workers that are going to fall through the cracks, and it's not small numbers. These are significant numbers of workers. And so immigrant workers who were left out of these expansions and new labor market entrants like college students or folks just coming out of college or folks coming out of the criminal justice system who don't have a work history are not able to get this new unemployment insurance right now, and we think that needs to be fixed. And then the last thing is, you know, there's been a ton of media reports talking about how long people are waiting on hold, trying to get through to their state unemployment insurance offices. And while there's been some money for administrative aid included in some of the federal bills, we think that it needs 30 to $40 billion more dollars to make sure that those systems can meet the demand. There are other things about, and you don't have to go through them all, but the uh, direct cash payment that a lot of folks looked again to other countries and said, you know, they're getting covered for a long time. We're getting a one-time check, right? you know, which is going to be late because Donald Trump needs to put his name on it. Exactly. But back in reality, you think more needs to be done in terms of direct cash payments. Yeah, for sure. $1,200 one time, just not enough. We need to look at that amount on a monthly basis for the remainder of this crisis. You know, the cash payment was also really restrictive about who's eligible to receive the payment and limited it to folks who have filed tax returns or citizens. And we think that it should be available to anybody who is making under the income threshold, regardless of their tax filing or immigration status. And we know, of course, that folks contribute to the economy. Right. We know that that money will go directly into goods and services, which is presumably what you want to happen. Exactly. It's not like the folks who would be getting this money are like hoarding this away or throwing it under their mattresses. These are folks who need this money. They need to spend it on rent and groceries and health care. It will be a big boost to the economy to get money into folks' hands. And then there are points, again, about personal protective equipment and testing and treatment for frontline workers and things to do with worker protections in general. You know, again, we've seen so many stories and heard from so many workers who completely lack the kind of protective equipment that they need. We also know that there's not enough money for testing and treatment. We want to make sure that, you know, anybody that gets tested or treated for coronavirus, those Uh, expenses should be picked up by the federal government. And as the CDC and the Trump administration talk about getting people back to work in the next few weeks, which is completely misguided, we need to make sure that we're talking about protective equipment and protective gear for everybody, not just the essential frontline workers. Well, with Trump doing his Trump thing, there is a lot of focus on state and local governments. But you know, and then we see the White House directing state relief in these hyperpartisan ways and states, it feels like scrabbling among themselves for resources. I mean, other governments are going to do what they can, but there really is no substitute for federal level coordination on something like this, is there? Absolutely. This is a clear case of where the federal government has an incredibly vital role to play. And the fact is the Trump administration has really fallen down on the job, not unexpectedly, but still it's tragic to see the consequences of this failure to act and this failure to lead in this moment. And, you know, the nation's governors are doing a tremendous job in many cases, trying to make sure that their states have equipment that it needs, that they get the resources it needs. But even with that tremendous leadership that we're seeing come out of many governors, it's just not a substitute for federal action. Well, let me just ask you finally, has there been response or what has been the response to the letter? And is there a, a follow-up plan? What what comes next? I think what's next is we have to continue to put as much pressure as possible on Congress to allocate this $500 billion. There's incredible alignment among the folks who work at the state and local levels. We're hearing the call for $500 billion coming out of the governors, the counties, the League of Cities you know, and all the advocacy groups that have signed on to this letter. And so, you know, it's clear what needs to be done. And the question is, 
is there going to be enough consensus in Congress to make it happen? What we've been hearing up until now, and the House leadership is pushing for as much aid as possible, but what we're hearing so far is that the numbers being discussed for state and local aid are really still not up to the task of what needs to be done. And so there's a tremendous amount of work. So I hope that people are reaching out to their congressional delegations and urging them to move this money to the states and localities as quickly as possible. We've been speaking with Naomi Walker, director of the Economic Analysis and Research Network, EARN, coordinated by the Economic Policy Institute. They're online at epi.org. Naomi Walker, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks so much, Janine. It was great to be here. Last fall, people were using words like unlivable to describe parts of California where wildfires and power outages were driving new kinds of crisis and exacerbating existing ones. Climate disruption, of course, was at the heart of it, but also a private utility system that isn't and hasn't been incentivized to address it. Johanna Bozua, co-manager of the Climate and Energy Program at the Democracy Collaborative, talked with Counterspin in early November. I asked first about the power outages planned by the utility company Pacific Gas and Electric because they were concerned that power lines might trigger wildfires in high winds, as had in fact happened in 2018, killing 85 people. But can shutting off power when conditions could spark fires, which due to climate disruption is going to be an awful lot of times, seriously serve as Plan A? There's a lot of history that's here in terms of PG&E not investing in its grid for so many years and really putting shareholder profits ahead of the infrastructure that we now have, which has created this concept of the new normal. But it also doesn't have to be. I mean, having these power shutoffs come on again and again, Governor Newsom has even said these are incredibly not surgical. They are doing blanket shutoffs because they're afraid of liability, but they're also not providing the infrastructure that communities need to actually make it through these. So their phone lines are off. You can't get onto their website, and there's only a generator station for every county. And so that's just showing that this is not just them taking precautions. This is them severely mismanaging a situation in which people are losing their power and losing access to maybe life-sustaining medical apparatuses as well. Well, and you point to history. They aren't just any utility that is being forced to deal with climate disruption. There's more that we should know about the role they've played vis-a-vis climate change, isn't there? Oh, yes, definitely. And the Energy and Policy Institute had a really important expose. Uh, We hear a lot about Exxon New and Shell New on the news, uh, but utilities knew too. They were part and parcel to the climate disinformation campaigns that have happened in the past and have sowed disinformation. And PG&E was a part of that as well. So PG&E is not a good actor in this situation. They are the ones that were able to make money off of fossil fuels for so many years and stopping action on climate change for years as well. And now they are paying the price with their own infrastructure that they failed to invest in so that it was ready for the new climate that they had in part given us. Well, alternatives are not just possible. They are, as you write, waiting. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about the idea of public utilities. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I advocate that PG&E should be transitioned into public ownership because it can eliminate some of those warped incentives that are associated with monopoly investor-owned utilities that operate our energy system. And we can move towards a situation in which a public good is provided by a public service. So by moving to a public institution, we are going to have hopefully a more accountable utility 
whose shareholders and stockholders are us. It is the people who are living in California uh, and not the shareholders who are hundreds of miles away. You talk a lot about the media. It's been really interesting for me to look at some of the coverage that's been happening around the investors that are circling PG&E right now. They're saying, oh, we'll take it over these venture capitalists like Paul Singer, who has been in bed with the Koch brothers for years investing in anti-climate sentiments. And we see the same thing with Berkshire Hathaway, which is another major utility company that has been trying to stop distributed solar across the United States, just the type of resiliency we need for California. But there are other options that are on the table right now, and they're in action. San Francisco just put in a bid to municipalize their area so that they could take back the grid, so that they could be in charge of their own destiny. And similarly, San Jose, one of the biggest cities that PG&E provides service to, is saying, actually, you know what we should do? We should create a cooperative utility so that it is beholden to the people of California, and we're taking over PG&E at the statewide level. Well, as we discussed when we talked about public banks on this show with Trinity Tran a few weeks ago, the word public isn't like, you know, pixie dust. It doesn't automatically make things work in a better way, but public utilities would have certain, you know, criteria about being democratized, about being decentralized, about being equitable. It's it's not just a goal, in other words, but a way to get there and, and who is involved in the process. Absolutely. It's not a silver bullet, but it does provide us this opportunity to have more recourse. And the other thing is we're building this thing from scratch, right? Or not from scratch. There is a history of public ownership in the energy sector, but we have the ability to design in to that institution, things like decentralization, things like equity, things like a democratized system, and build upon what we've seen work in the past and also where we've seen public utilities historically fail. This is a huge opportunity for California to create an energy system that's rooted in climate justice, that's rooted in the realities of the changing climate and how they're going to ensure that they actually are creating a resilient California. That was Johanna Bozua speaking with Counterspin in November 2019. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by the Media Watch Group FAIR. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find them on FAIR's website, fair.org. The show's engineered by Erica Rosado. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. 